This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The General Services Administration is back on top of the new Fatara scorecard out Wednesday. GSA has an A-plus on the scorecard again after it fell to a B-plus on the last one. FedScoop reports 18 agency grades stayed the same, four went up, and two went down. The Office of Management and Budgets mandating masks indoors again in the Washington, D.C. area. Deputy Director for Management Jason Miller says even vaccinated employees have to wear masks inside federal buildings. Federal News Network reports OMB says agencies should post new signage and put information online so employees know what they have to do. The Air Force is stopping a plan to move some A-10 aircraft because of, of, of a provision in the Senate version of the National Defense Authorization Act. That provision blocks the Air Force's plan to get rid of 42 A-10s. Military.com reports the force was planning to move 14 of them from Nellis Air Force Base to Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. 76% of the workforce at the Internal Revenue Service trusts its leaders to respond well to future emergencies, according to the 2021 Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. That results because of the agency's response to the pandemic. Dave Wenergren's Chief Executive Officer of ACT-IAC, he's former Assistant Deputy Chief Management Officer at the Department of Defense. Dave, welcome. I think the most important word in all of that is trust. The IRS obviously took certain actions to generate trust in its workforce that uh, because of the pandemic that now projects forward. What's the core of developing that trust, not just agency to workforce broadly, but leader to the ones that that leader leads on a, on a micro level, Dave, welcome. It's fantastic to be with you, Francis, and it's a subject that you and I have both cared about for a long time. Many years ago, you and I did an interview with Stephen Covey Jr. about his book, The Speed of Trust, and that book is just as relevant today as it was all those years ago. Large organizations, both public and private, still pay the price, both in terms of cost and time, of operating in low trust environments. And if you look more broadly, trust in government has been on the decline for years. It's one of the reasons why at ACT-IAC, our Agenda 2021 Presidential Transition Project focused on how do you deliver outcomes and build trust. And the single biggest thing that leaders can be doing right now to build trust is to have transparency to let data-driven decisions and evidence-based policies take us away from decisions based on fear and anecdote. The themes that I have been hearing from not just human capital experts, but management experts across government, no longer in government and so on, when we talk about the back to the office process is that transparency that you just mentioned. And the other thing is agility, understanding you won't get it right necessarily the first time and admitting that to your people. How does the agility, we talk about agility in IT all the time, how does agility apply in the management in the human capital sphere, Dave? Well, it, that is just such an important and timely topic for us to talk about because while agile and this idea about iterative speed and close to the customer began as a software development world, 
Right now, the push is all about agile government, that we can actually transform the major processes of government. Again, it's something ACT-IAC made a focus of our transition project, Agenda 2021. It's something NAPA, the National Academy of Public Administration, has been focused on with the stand-up of an agile government center. If we can do three things, if we can help make the acquisition process move faster, we can help involve the customer, and the customer is both the customer like citizens, but the customer, the employees of the agency, and we can help to recognize that processes could be optimized and changed. We will make some profound differences that will, to your point, not only result in better outcomes for government, but also help to build up trust. Is there, is it reasonable for one to uh, say that agility with a capital A in the IT realm is maybe not accurate. Maybe it's agility with a small a and those same concepts apply in the management and human capital uh, field too, Dave. Yes, absolutely. If you look at the way the world is moving, whether it's about managed services, moving to the cloud, cybersecurity managed services, the emphasis on shared services, it's all about mission outcomes and it's all about more and more often today, somebody else external to your organization is going to be delivering services for you and helping make that mission function. And we all have a lot of issues with that sort of giving up of personal control. And that's why these agile techniques have so much more relevancy than just to building an IT solution, because they're all about how do you create outcome-based performance measures? How do you have the right kind of service level agreements that will allow you to have trust and communicate and engage with your provider outside of your organization to help deliver results inside of your organization? All right, I'm going to pull the curtain back here for a minute. We sent you a note this week and said, what are you thinking about, Dave? Because I hadn't seen you on the show for a while. And the, the three themes that you sent me were, we talked about trust, we talked about agility, and character was the third thing you put in your note. How does that tie into the other two things and what's on your mind in particular about character, Dave? Well, well you know, I love to talk about leadership and, and there's so many things about leadership we could talk about today. But if you look at the trifecta of trust declining, uh, the need for more agility and speed and the rapid pace of change that we as society is facing. To me, the most important leadership thing that folks could be working on today is character. Uh, Dr. Jack London wrote a book about character. He said your character will absolutely define the type of life that you live. And it is so true. As leaders, our actions speak so much louder than our words and our actions have an amplifying effect on the entire organization. So if you're not walking the walk, then we will continue to live in a world where, you know, ripped from the headlines this week with congressional hearings, a world of divisiveness, a world where we live in social media echo chambers and not living in a world where leaders are setting the tone and the behaviors that they expect to get from those that work with them. We just have a little bit more than a minute left, Dave, and the problem is that that mindset, unfortunately, government generally pushes people toward risk aversion rather than just being excellent is, is my take. Is that a fair read on my part or do you see it differently? I, I love that. That should be the bumper sticker from this conversation, right? Like, you know, it's time to stop just avoiding risks and instead manage them and focus on excellence. Be willing to step out of your comfort zone and take that leap of faith to boldly move into the future. What an opportunity. I mean, we are living in a time of such rapid change coming out of the pandemic. Right? Like, take the move. Dave, it's great to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Coming next, big money to juice the bioeconomy. Straight ahead on Government Matters, getting ahead of the curve for the next pandemic. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Biden administration says it'll spend more than $3 billion on a program for antivirals to fight pandemics. The leader of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins, says the money will go for everything from drug design to clinical trials. Rose Butchard is an associate fellow in the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Rose, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. This is a part of what the administration is doing toward a concept called biosecurity. What does biosecurity mean and where does it fit into the spectrum of the national security and national defense continuum? Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to, to be here and to discuss our uh, most recently published report. Um, one of the interesting things about biosecurity is that how it's defined, um, there isn't exactly a clear consensus. It's often defined um, slightly differently depending on which government agency is looking at it and depending on their uh, area of focus. Um, so for example, both the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Defense's definition um, focuses more on the management of pathogens and toxins. Um, for the purposes of our brief, we've just find biosecurity as an integrated approach to assessing and managing risks uh, posed by biological agents and biotechnology to human, animal, and plant life and health. You also uh, define a term bioeconomy and talk about and, and, and have researched the government's position and role in the bioeconomy. What is that? Is it as simple as just the money that's involved in producing um, biological security for the country, or is there more to it than that, Rose? Um, I think that's a great question. I think one of the, the um, key findings of this report is that the bioeconomy both represents some of the money spent, but also um, really a, a really robust community outside the government that has sprung into action in the last year. Um, and the, the government's work with the bioeconomy really has grown by leaps and bounds um, through, uh, through the last year of, of living through COVID. What have we learned from the pandemic regarding what the position of the government is and could be uh, in the bioeconomy in particular um, and, and and how it could uh, prepare now for something that could happen again in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so over the last year, we've seen the government spend um, over $7.2 billion in COVID spending in the uh, sectors we examined in this report. Um, representing an overall increase of $4.6 billion. Um, the Department of Defense especially was very engaged in COVID-19 response efforts, including um, the Defense Production Act, um, Operation Warp Speed, um, and then the, purpose of the government purchases of PPE vaccines um, and other supplies. Um, one of the key things to do now will be to um, figure out how we can get in the habit of working together um, so that when we um, working together in, in sort of biosecurity peacetime so that should the next pandemic occur, um, we can really see the bioeconomy bio spring into action um, along the lines of some great public-private partnership. You and your colleagues uh, refer to that working together this way. Biosecurity policymakers need to consider how to engage strategically with the bioeconomy beyond the stage of R&D. And then you use an analogy of the aerospace industry. What's that analogy and what could that look like in the biosecurity, bioeconomy landscape? Sure, I think um, the government's been in many ways, very successful in working with the biosecurity and bioeconomy um, communities. 
Um, however, it's really been primarily focused on early stage development and, um, and research of biosecurity technologies, um, much less in the production and purchasing of products, um, the way it might be in the aerospace industry. Um, and so one of the things we are seeing some indicators that the government would like to get into more of that latter stage development space, um, including a $50 billion uh, to establish a technology directorate at the National Science Foundation or NSF, um, and $30 billion in the proposed American Jobs Plan, which would go towards um, taking vaccines through phase one and two research and clinical trials. You list some of the potential stakeholders in this, uh, and, and you list some here that I hadn't thought of, but, but that are fascinating. OSTP seems obvious. National Security Council seems obvious. FBI, State Department, National Science Foundation, uh, HHS. DOD struck me as um, not one I would have thought of, but, but uh, very wise, DHS. And the Department of Agriculture, too. What does that community of influence or, or community of, of interested partners look like and how does it work together? Is it a formal council or is it just more an informal association of people who understand these are the other people in government that should care about this stuff? I mean, I think um, Department of Agriculture does play a role in the bios, uh, economy and in biosecurity, um, including, for example, maintaining a list of biological threats to animals and plants. Um, and then we've also seen some of their data management practices come through as um, as being really useful. Um, and I think this has this year has been sort of a crash course in establishing the who's who in biosecurity and government. Rose, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you on. Congratulations to you and your colleagues on this work. Up next, the missing piece of the puzzle for fighting homegrown violent extremism. Straight ahead on Government Matters, using better data to stop attacks before they happen. We archive every episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. The Department of Homeland Security is warning its law enforcement partners about two anniversaries in August that could generate violent extremist attacks. It's part of DHS's strategy to deal with homegrown violent extremism. Triana McNeil's Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Triana, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You write in this work since 2010, DHS has developed strategic initiatives that target HVE. And you write, uh, DHS's strategy contains some but not all of the key elements of a comprehensive strategy. And you, and you write, there are seven of those. Where is DHS succeeding and where is it not having as much success in a strategy for dealing with HVE? Sure. So DHS, their strategy has three components. Number one, the framework which outlines their vision for what they're trying to achieve as they uh, counter terrorism. And the second component is uh, the public action plan. What they are going to be telling the public to help hold them accountable for specific steps they plan to take and by when. And then the third is an internal implementation plan. And that's really the how-to guide for the staff at DHS. Um, and DHS is doing a very good job in terms of having a clear mission, goals and objectives for how it's going to counter this violent extremism. But where it's falling short is specific performance measures. For example, you wanna know 
how far you can go with certain activities before you invest too much money and it's not really moving the needle. And so that's something that we would want DHS to incorporate into their strategy. We want to know the progress that's being made. So if they need to redirect resources to something that's working better, they can. And the other thing that we were looking for that they didn't have is the resource investments. How much money, how many staff, what types of skill sets do you need to implement this strategy? So those are the things we were looking for. Couple of things there I wanna pull on, but another thread that you write in this work is strategy didn't include a discussion of external factors such as how the economy, demographics, or emerging technologies may affect the department in meeting its goals. That's kind of an overview of the landscape of what might be coming at us and the components of what might be coming at us. That's pretty important, it sounds like uh, to me, Triana. It's critical. For example, these are live documents, this strategy. And so when the pandemic happened that we are, we are still in, how is the pandemic affecting your achievements for these goals? Uh, how are you redirecting resources away from your planned activities to address some of these other issues related to the pandemic, as well as social media? Uh, we know violent extremists are using social media to coordinate their efforts and to plan. And how are you incorporating these advances in that type of technology as well into your strategy. So those are things that they need to stay on top of for sure. The underpinning of all of this, it sounds to me, Triana, is data. And you write in this work, DHS has taken some steps to establish a data governance framework. DHS has already identified some data challenges. What's going well for them with that framework? You identified that as, as item number one of mm -hmm. what they're doing well mm -hmm. in. Uh, and what are the data challenges that DHS is having? Sure, well, they have established a data governance council. And that's important because that's the body that's gonna tell DHS how to manage and use its data resources. Uh, it's established a strategy to make sure that that information is used as fully as possible and is shared agency-wide. All very important steps. They also have committed to uh, investing in developing the skill set of their staff so their staff can fully leverage that data. That is all very good. However, they're in the early stages of incorporating targeted violence and terrorism prevention data into this governance framework. We're happy to see that they are making the commitment to incorporate this information into their broader agency-wide data governance framework, but they need to fully incorporate that. They also uh, don't have a good handle on all of the data assets available to them when it relates to targeted violence. Uh, for example, they don't have one comprehensive database that tracks threats of violent extremism. These are things that we would hope that they would have, especially at this point. Um, you mentioned, uh, you write in the recommendations here, uh, one of them is to incorporate its targeted violence and terrorism prevention mission into its departmental governance of data. Is the incorporations, uh, are the incorporation steps that you just mentioned and the establishment of that council steps in the right direction toward fulfilling the recommendations that you're making, Triana? They are their excellent steps and we're going to continue to track their progress and they have committed to us uh, and agreed with our recommendations that that's something that they need to do and something that they will be doing so we will continue to monitor that 
Another recommendation I note in your work is that DHS revise its strategy to include all key elements of a comprehensive strategy. You mentioned three of them at the beginning of this conversation. Does that mean they still have four others to go to fulfill the list of GAOs written in the past? They do, and they're making some progress on two of those four. For example, um, they have outlined um, different uh, interim goals that they want to achieve, and I think that that's very smart because that's how you can track the interim progress. But again, they need performance measures. Uh, they need to identify the resources that they need to, to fully implement the strategy. That's critical, right? Um, and then, of course, the external factors that we discussed, things like the pandemic, things like technological advances that violent extremists can take advantage of. Those are the things that they need to fully incorporate in their strategy. Triana McNeil, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. You can find a link to Triana's report at govmatters.tv resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, that's on our website, too. You get a preview and a recap of every show. When you sign up for our daily newsletters, you just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. North America's largest maritime exposition and conference is back in person. The Navy League Sea Airspace 2021 is next Monday through Wednesday at Gaylord National Harbor. You'll see speakers from the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Maritime Administration, and Congress. You can learn more and sign up at govmatters.tv events. Finally tonight, everything is for a season, and tonight is the end of my season as the host of Government Matters. I have two important thank yous I want to give. First, to the people who work behind the scenes on this show, the staff and the crew and the rest of the team, I say thank you very much for making me look as good as you possibly could for the last five years. The other huge thank you is to you. We could do the best show in the world, but if you didn't watch, none of it would mean anything. So thank you very much for choosing Government Matters over all of the other things you could have watched or listened to or done. A new face will take this chair soon, and I will move to a new place in September. In the meantime, I'm easy to find on social media, and I'll continue watching the government community. Government Matters continues weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings on, at 10.30 on 7 News. For one final time, thanks very much for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.
You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.